0: Will you stand with me for the reading of the word from 1 Samuel 3? Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. The Lord, word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here today. It's good to be here. Uh, whether you're here in the room or you're online, it's good to have you with us. We've been going through this series, uh, as Jeff mentioned, on reenchantment about what does it mean to, to re-engage, to experience, to have the eyes to see what God is doing. And we've been going through this series for uh, six or so weeks, and, I, and we're done this, this Sunday. And so I want to kind of remind us where we've been so that we can kind of realize what the, why this matters so much to us. We started off by, by walking alongside Moses. And Moses teaches us to pay attention to the periphery of our vision. It's, it's on the edge of our vision that God works. He's, Moses is just doing the work that's set before him. He's, he's, pastor, uh, he's taking care of sheep, pastoring sheep. Is that right? That's more like what Jesus... Anyway, so he's taking care of a bunch of sheep, shepherding sheep, and he sees something that's weird on the side of his vision. And that's where God is at work. And then Thomas the Apostle reminds us that in a secular world where, where your mind might be uh, infiltrated at times with doubt and you might experience moments of disbelief, that it's also true that in the atheist and the agnostic mind is going to experience moments of transcendence. That the atheist is haunted by transcendence in the same way that you might have a prayer and you might experience some kind of existential crisis in that moment, the same thing is going to be happening to that atheist when they experience God in a way that they can't explain. And that's a doorway. Elijah taught us that God is at work, is not not limited to temples or, or to the stories in Scripture, but a living God that is active in the world. So much so that as Barbara Brown Taylor says, If if we had the eyes to see, we couldn't walk 10 feet without banging our shins against the altars to God. And then two weeks ago, Paul reminded us in Romans chapter 6 that our sacraments are more than symbols of spiritual power, but the actual presence of God in our lives. Not just how we mark weeks and moments in our lives, but this is the moment where we are transformed. As we took communion today, as we experience our baptism, as we gather together in, as, as an assembly. And this week, we're turning to the story of Samuel. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 3, if you want to turn there. But before we jump in, I got to tell you, look, if you're going to hunt a dragon for the first time, you need to have a guide. If you're going to hunt a dragon for the first time, you need to have a guide. Now, wait a minute. Is that nerd of a preacher going to tell us D&D stories again? Because I'm kind of sick of those. We've heard them before. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. First thought that was not funny either, so you guys are good. I'm... All right, so in, in a disenchanted world, in the world that we live in, We live with what Richard calls the ache. It's a deep longing for something more. A deep longing for something more. And there's a lot of different words that you can use to describe the ache the emptiness we feel from the absence of God. We feel anxious, we feel depressed. We feel malise or, or we, we're bored. And, and the reality is that technology, which was, which was supposed to save us, uh, expressed as in a means of increasing our productivity and efficiency, has, has not done that. Technology was supposed to give us more time with our families, more time away from work. But what it did was it invited work onto our dining room tables. And social media, which was supposed to bring us together, makes, can make us feel even more lonely and, and make us feel like we're missing out on the important things that are happening. Politics and, and medical advancement and more means to define and express your individual self has left us feeling cynical and angry. The fact that you have the responsibility now to define who you are, to make sense of your personal identity, means that you have to tell everyone who that is. Some of us, we don't know. And if you feel the ache, if you feel that longing for something more, what that means is you have become disenchanted with disenchanted meant. And God is calling you. God is calling your name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for this time, to be gathered together. We give you praise. Father, for the words of thanksgiving and offering that we've heard, I thank you. And Father, now, as we, as we gather ourselves around your word, around your table, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, Amen. So to paraphrase Mary Oliver, who's a wonderful poet, she says, God does not need a passport. God does not need to bring identification as if we could ask, who are you? As if the darkness opening into morning was not enough, but yet we ask. And one of the questions that I've been struggling with over the last six weeks, as I've been wrestling with these ideas, is is reenchantment really a solution? Like, I understand the secular age. I understand what it feels like that God kind of is, is being put in a smaller and smaller space where that, that conversation is allowed to happen in our culture. I get that in some places, that conversation not as welcome as it was a while back, but would reenchantment really fix any of that for us? I was talking with David Ray the other day, and he asked that, he asked that question. And, the, and a question that kind of just, it stuck in my mind like a splinter. I couldn't quite get rid of it. I couldn't quite satisfy it. It just kind of sat there itching on my mind. If, if the Middle Ages were so enchanted, as we're saying, this kind of era before now, before disenchantment happened, if the Middle Ages were so enchanted, and if the presence of God was so realized in so many places, why did they need to build those amazing cathedrals? Why did they need to build those spaces, those monuments to God, if God was being felt everywhere? Why did that happen? And that question, it wouldn't let me go. And so I thought for a moment, well, maybe the Middle Ages weren't as enchanted as as we think they are. Maybe that's just kind of a story that we're laying into the past, kind of anachronistically, when when things were better. Maybe it it was a conversation about power. That the church wanted to have the political power to build these magnificent things so that kings and their palaces and would be equally threatened, kings and their castles. We can build big stuff too, you know. Maybe it was something about the church gathering. I don't know if you've ever sang in one of those cathedrals. But the acoustics are amazing. And maybe it was something about the church gathering to sing in that room that created this moment of transcendence that that shaped who they were. But what we have to realize is that those places, some of those cathedrals took more than a generation to build. People who laid the foundation and the keystone for those buildings would not live to see the completion of the work that they started. It was that important to them. And in some ways, Andrew Root helps us here. He says that the building itself in, in, in an enchanted era, the building itself was a gateway. It looked like you were walking through the doors of a church, but what you were actually doing was creating a connection, a portal between our world and the world of God. And inside of those stones and inside of that glass, the, evil could not exist there. That was the power of that space. It was something so other in the lives of the people around them that that it was completely different, and that's why they existed. But what happens as our world becomes more and more secular is that stone is really just stone. That glass is really just glass. It's no longer a portal to the transcendent, but it still has meaning. I could tell you stories about the church that I grew up in and how powerful that space is, that building is, the architecture in that room is to me. Because that was, the, I mean, the first Sunday I was alive, I was in that room with my family. It was the place that I was baptized. It was the place where they blessed me as I, I left to go to college And then 10 years later, even though I had been gone for so long, they invited me back and threw a wedding shower, even though I hadn't seen those people in forever, because they wanted to bless me as I got married. It was the place where I was baptized, and my sisters and my brother were baptized. It was the place where we buried my father. There was meaning in that room, because there was meaning that we placed in that room. Which is a little bit different than a portal but it's, it's still important. But you fast forward to another time in my life when I'm working in San Jose, which is a very post-Christian time, a post-Christian culture. And, and you see people around the city looking at the space that the church building is taking up and they question why it's even there in the first place because they don't care about the meaning that's been attributed to the people that have been in that place that has that has no value to them what does have value to them is the acreage on which the building is sitting on because that's like two acres two and a half acres of space it's a giant parking lot that seems to be only used about once a week and they think to themselves that is very valuable land now in san jose like every house costs a million dollars Every little postage-sized stamp house costs a million dollars. Actually, in the city, Campbell, it was like 2.3, but I don't think you're going to believe me if I said that. So we'll just call it a million to make it easier. And they could sell that space and make it available for the homeless. They could sell that space and tax it. That's useful. The building is a cost to the community and a secular age. And it turns us to the Samuel story. It's like I said in 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is one of the most alluring stories in the Old Testament. God calls, Samuel misunderstands, he goes to Eli over and over until Eli tells him what to do. And it begins with that statement, in those days the word of the Lord was rare and there weren't very many visions. There were not many visions and you can't miss that the next verse promptly says and eli was losing his vision as he laid down to sleep and yet god calls samuel samuel and samuel hearing the voice goes to eli and says yes what do you need how can i help you eli says i didn't call you go to bed And Samuel returns back to the place where the Ark of the Covenant is the most important artifact in Israel's history. He sleeps next to it, yet he does not know the Lord. And the Lord calls him again, Samuel, Samuel. He goes back to Eli. What what can I do? What do you need? Son, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And then the third time it happens, Samuel, Samuel, he goes to Eli and something clicks in Eli's mind and Eli says, okay, this is what's happening. So this is what you say. The next time that voice calls, you said, Lord, speak for your servant is listening. We all need a guide the first time you go to hunt a dragon. Because what happens next is that Samuel says those words, speak for your servant is listening. And he is led into the unknown. What was the first time you discovered a whole new field and you had no idea what to do with it? You know, cartographers used to put on the edge of the map where they didn't know what was out there, beyond here be dragons. And what they were saying was, we don't know what's on the other side of this map. We don't know what's on the other side of this ocean. We don't know what's on the other side of these mountains. So it might as well be dragons. So if you go out there, you're risking it on your own but you're also going on an adventure. You may see things that nobody else has seen. When was the first time that you found a new field and you had no idea what to do with it? Maybe it was the first time that someone took you hunting or fishing. Maybe it was the first time you entered into a real relationship that lasted more than two months and you got past that twitter pated feeling and you realized, I have to do something with this. Maybe it was the first time you built something that was real, like a company or, or a community or something that mattered. And all of a sudden you realize, this, this is a gift that I've been given. What do I do? And what does a spiritual guide do? A guide is never going to be perfect. If you read 1 Samuel chapter 2, what you learn is that Eli's life is kind of a mess at least in his ability to parent his kids. His boys are terrible. Eli had sons that turned into lousy priests. They were embezzling from the temple, basically. They were taking what belongs to God and keeping it from themselves. And this is why I love this story, because, and this is why I love Scripture, because in the Bible, no one is a cardboard cutout of good and evil, right and wrong. Scripture, above all other things, is honest about what it means to be a human being. And Eli holds both of those two things in his hand. He knows how to be the spiritual guide to Samuel, and he's really wrecked his life. He has faith and he has doubt. He has courage and he has fear. He has truth and self-deception. He is noble and he is base. And they're all tied up into this one moment. And it's true in Scripture and it's true in us. But he can tell Samuel exactly what to do. When he says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. This story is so alluring because it's what happened in Eli's life that made him learn those words. In a time where there were no visions and his vision was fading. What happens next is a hard word for Samuel. Because basically, God tells him, I am judging Eli, and he is found wanting. But then what happens next is an amazing adventure. Samuel is the only person in the Bible who is both priest, prophet, and judge. He will anoint kings, and he will dispose them. The adventure that Samuel is going to happen is incredible. And I wonder if we live in the same world, in a time where there aren't many visions. And we have a choice. We have a choice to be the guides that teach others to hunt dragons. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that this place, this building, needs to be a place that is full of guides. Not debaters struggling to claim a market share in public discourse, arguing that we need to return to Christendom. We don't need to make the argument that prayer needs to be put back in schools as if it has ever left, because all we're trying to do is claim a foothold in another place in society. That's not our job. Our job is to be the guides that say, what should we talk about when we pray? What should you ask for exactly? And more importantly, when God speaks to you, what do you say? We need to be a place that is full of guides, not caretakers of an institution that is fading or falling, and we're just trying to prop everything up so it lasts one more generation. We need to be a place that's full of guides, not anxious or worried parents desperately trying to make our children choose our brand. I have quit praying that my boys will grow up and continue to go to church when they are older, but rather that God will captivate their hearts and their imaginations." Our job is not to teach others the rules they must obey to get to heaven, but to inspire them so that they have ears to hear when God calls and the words to answer and obey. Anton de Saint-Esprit, who wrote The Little Prince, said, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. And I think one of the ways that we live against the tide in a disenchanted world, one of the ways that we can be light and salt to the city around us is learning how to teach others how to hunt the dragon for the first time, to do something that they never thought they could do on their own which is encounter God. What if our job and how we understood our purpose in this world is to teach them to yearn for the vast and endless God? I don't know about you, but I cannot think of any more noble task. Would you stand, please, for our benediction? Highland, the reality is that we are a mixed bag. Each of us ourselves, because we are full of faith and doubt. We are full of courage and fear. We are full of truth and self-deception. We are noble and we are base. But may we lean into the truth that we are called to do something greater. You are called to be the guide to direct someone that has never encountered God before and teach them where to go and what to say. And so this week, may you be filled with the Spirit. May you see God's work before you. And may you have the courage to go in peace.